Welcome to The Indicator, a weekly podcast that is a collaboration between the award-winning journalists at the Colorado Independent and KGNU Community Radio. It's a weekly look at the very important gubernatorial race here in Colorado. And we will deliver because together we can prove that in our America, in our Colorado, anything is possible. Let's get to work. Thank you very much. Let's get it done. Let's win this election for the future generations that are counting on us. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless the great state of Colorado. I'm Maeve Conran, News Director at KGNU. And joining us today, we have Susan Green, Editor at the Colorado Independent. Today, we're going to take a look at a couple of different aspects of this race. Later in the show, we're going to take a look at the lack of media access to the candidates. But first, water. We are living in a very arid state, a state that came up with its first ever water plan just a few years ago under the watch of Governor Hickenlooper. But has water been discussed at all with either candidate Walker Stapleton or Jared Polis? Very little. Um, It's not been, number one, asked that much. And more importantly, when questions have been asked, um, they've not really been answered. The extent to which uh, both candidates have really addressed it is at a water conference, I believe it was in August. Uh, It's called the Colorado Water Congress, and both candidates gave uh, prepared speeches and remarks. Many people remarked that when Walker Stapleton gave his, it felt, it sounded like he was reading a term paper, and when Jared Polis read his, It sounded like he was about to fall asleep. Uh, But when approached uh, on this topic, which I have to say is, you know, outside of this bubble that is the campaign, uh, this issue is percolating up. I mean, it's arguably the most pressing issue I think we face in the state. And when asked for specifics on their their stances, they really won't answer. So it's unclear really what. Uh, the next governor, one or the other, will be doing, and they will, whichever it is, inherit a lot of problems from the water perspective. Well, I suppose there have been a couple of related issues that have been brought to the candidates' attention and they've commented on, which relate to water, and that is population growth in Colorado, which will put ever more pressure on the already diminished water supply. And the other being climate change, because so many projections show that we're in almost a permanent drought. I mean, we're almost two decades into a current drought and the climate models show that we'll have even less water with warming temperatures. And as we said, we're seeing a growing population, particularly along the front range of Colorado, which arguably is using most of the state's water. So for it it does seem unusual then that neither candidate are really taking a major position or have not had water front and centre of their platforms. Yeah. Uh, I I will correct something that you said, because I think it's little known in the state that actually the growth, you know, and just basic population, um, it's called municipal use. So that means you and I and uh, all of us who take showers and maybe water our plants and wash our dishes um, and pay for our water, we're called municipal users. And we actually use less than 10% of all water in the state. Most water is used for agriculture. And um, 
there is a lot of emphasis in this conversation about climate change, which is actually very real. Um, our current projections that we have do not really um, consider climate change and the effects um, of it, the, the state projections, and actually the streams and the river flows in our state have diminished by something like 20%. So, um, but there's almost never a conversation about in the water world about the fact that there's growth as well. It's sort of, sort of generally blamed on climate change and the policy conversation doesn't really take into account growth. And these are some of the um, criticisms that people are pointing out as Hickenlooper leaves um, many water problems to his successor. Well, Hickenlooper was at the helm of the state in 2015 when the state's first ever water plan was released. And this was certainly touted as an answer to looming water shortfall. It's been heavily criticised for really coming up short in many ways and really not allowing the state to move forward in a comprehensive way around water issues. And I think you spoke or the Independent spoke to Governor Hickenlooper earlier this month. And did he say that we're not in a crisis? when it comes to water? He did. I asked him. We did an interview. I wanted him to respond to some of the specific criticisms in the plan. And um, he kept saying in different words, but also as blatantly as we're not in a crisis, um, that we're not. And I think across the board, and it used to be just, you know, environmentalists where we're expressing concerns or maybe the municipal districts, but now it's farmers, it's developers, it's people all across the state who really look at the projections and they look at the trends with growth and with climate and with uh, ridification um, and just see that this is not adding up. The amount of water that we would need to glean by 2050, which is the... um, it's the date that they're projecting a water shortfall now, but those projections are based on numbers from 2008. So it could be before 2050 that we have a pretty massive water shortfall, and that would be such a big shortfall that it would fail to meet the needs of uh, a million residents a year, um, municipal users, again, not farmers, but folks like us. So um in in response to complaints that you know, I was asking him about people saying this plan does not include meeting um, or averting that that shortage. He um, kept emphasizing that we're really not in a crisis. Number one, and that his plan was pioneering, and every pioneering plan, pretty much in history, has had challenges and criticisms. And he has a very rosy outlook. On water. In fact, I would say Hickenlooper's outlook on water is rosier than pretty much anyone I've spoken to in the past year since I've been reporting on. Well, I think Hickenlooper is not alone in terms of Colorado governors not necessarily being great visionaries when it comes to water in the state. I think you describe them as traditionally playing a role of referee, and that really acknowledges the fact that you know there are so many different entities fighting essentially over water and not just within the state because of course Colorado is connected to several other states as part of the Colorado River Compact with so much of our water actually coming from the Colorado River Basin as well. Now one of the things you said Susan was that you know one of the biggest criticisms of the water plan that was released under 
Governor Hickenlooper's stewardship in 2015 was that it really lacks actionable specifics, but it was always touted as being very collaborative. I think tens of thousands of people, maybe 30,000 people were in all uh, touted as having been brought to the table in some form. But this idea of no actionable specifics, what is the legacy then that will be left to the next governor, be it Stapleton, be it Polis? What will the water crisis be as it lands on their desk as they take over in the governor's role? Um, well, it, number one, there's this projected shortfall again. So um, it could be 2050, it could be earlier, but we are anticipated to have not a minor, but a major shortfall in 32 years, right? And things turn around very slowly on water policy. And so 32 years may seem like a long time in terms of some public policy making, but not in terms of water. So we're number one, we're facing that shortfall in 32 years or sooner if we had more accurate projections uh, about our supply and demand. Number two, there is a massive overdraft on the Colorado River um, entirely, and that means the seven states that use it, including us. And there is something called the law of the river and many packs and deals made over the last century that manage the flows, um, the surplus, and also the shortages on, on Colorado River. And it, for a long time, there, there were surpluses. I mean, there was more than enough river water to really go around. But at this point, it is so overtapped. Um, I think people in the upper basin like to think it's so overtapped because of Arizona and California and Nevada, and it absolutely is that. But it's also overtapped up here by us. And um, what we are facing is a deadline of uh, the end of this year, basically. The federal government expects Colorado and the f- three other upper basin states, so that's Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah, to work out what's called a drought contingency plan, which is a plan to uh, pump water into Lake Powell, which is our emergency reserve. It's our reservoir on the Colorado River because it's half empty at this point. And that reservoir, Lake Powell, has to be at uh, sufficient enough levels to guarantee that we can Uh, meet our contract obligation to deliver a certain amount of water to the lower basin of California, Nevada, and Arizona. So what we really need to do as a state and as an upper basin, these four states together, is agree on how we're going to come up. I mean, if we're already overtapped and we're already, you know, overallocated, and what we saw this summer, for example, we had two rivers, the Yampa and the Crystal River, um, on which the state had to make what's called a call, which is, uh, in very layman's terms, imposing serious restrictions on those rivers to avoid, um, well, basically to keep them from running dry. So how, in the face of the kind of growth that we're having, in the face of the kind of climate change and drought we're having, and as you said, that we're in our 19th year of drought. It's almost two decades old, um, and it's not expected to end anytime soon. In the face of those factors, um, how are we going to meet this extra obligation of pumping more of our water into Lake Powell than we ever have? We have to do this contractually. If we don't, the feds could take over control, really, of the river, and they could literally cut off any state or um, restrict or ration water. And again, I'm using very layman's terms because it's more complicated than this. 
to states that aren't able to live within their means. And so what we have here, right as Hickenlooper is stepping out of office, is a lot of people um, very worried about Colorado's ability to work out such a, a drought contingency plan and to work it out in a way that's fair um, across all sorts of uh, lines. So uh, urban, agricultural, and municipal, uh, East Slope, I'm sorry, West Slope and Front Range. Um, and although I think Hickenlooper's plan is really touted, and I think the success of it comes in its ability to encourage collaboration on the river, these are very old tensions that exist for more than a century. And uh, nothing exacerbates tensions more than a shortage. And what we are coming up against is I think everyone knows we don't have enough water and there's a drought, but I think people don't understand how severe it is and how much water we are going to have to basically give up and send to Lake Powell to meet our, our contractual obligations. You're listening to The Indicator, a weekly podcast taking a look at the governor's race here in Colorado. It's a collaboration between the award-winning reporters at the Colorado Independent and KGNU Community Radio. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU and today we're speaking with Susan Green, an editor at The Indy who has long covered water issues. We're looking at the legacy of water under Governor Hickenlooper and what it's going to mean for the next governor. In 2015, Governor Hickenlooper released the much-touted Colorado Water Plan, supposedly a vision for the future of Colorado. And he recently spoke with the Independent to say that there really wasn't a water crisis in the state. Well, Susan, just to get back to the water plan, many water experts also point to a lack of good data being used in the water plan. And maybe that is what's leading to this lack of urgency on the part of Governor Hickenlooper when it comes to water, maybe his overly optimistic view, despite us being almost 20 years into a drought, and then the lack of consideration of water as a major issue for both gubernatorial candidates. What's the data component? The data component is something very geeky called a SWAZI, and don't make me tell you what that stands for, but it's some sort of statewide water assessment that our uh, Department of Natural Resources does to figure out uh, projections for demand and supply. And we've been operating uh, under the Swazi that was released in 2011, but based on data from 2008, as I said earlier. And so that did not factor in climate change. It also, as we all know, there has been a massive amount of growth since 2008, right? A massive amount of drought and a massive amount of growth. And so when the water plan was released in, in 2015, uh, we were told that by 2016, there would be this new statewide assessment, a new SWAZI that was updated and that factored in climate change. Um, that deadline got pushed back and pushed back. And so we are now expecting that it will be out in July of 2019. That's three years late. And so not only have people questioned me, why did they release a, a statewide study based on this, at this point, our 10-year-old numbers, um, but how can you expect um, much urgency around this as a policy issue if the picture that people have of not only our demand, but also our supply is so antiquated? Um, so that's one of the criticisms. Another criticism is that the, the plan expects to glean 
500,000 acre feet of water, which as I said earlier, is enough to quench the needs of a million municipal users a year. Um, by conservation only in cities and suburbs, only by municipal users. And as I said earlier, municipal users use less than 10% of water in the state. So 80-something percent, like 87%, is used by agriculture. There's nothing in the plan that expects conservation from agriculture. And so um, for as much collaboration and sort of warm, fuzzy feelings that people uh, credit Hickenlooper for with this for encouraging in this plan, I, I think when it comes down to it, um, and all of that water has to be gleaned by further conservation measures in cities, and cities could always do more to conserve water. But if you look at Denver Water, for example, which is the largest municipal water district in the state and serves a, a huge portion of the state, they have cut their water per capita water use by I think something like 20% since 2000. And they are using the same amount of water now that they were using in 2000, despite the addition of something like a quarter of a million new customers. I think by all accounts, um, these cities and these suburbs could do more to conserve water. But the people who work in these fields, who manage water, who are looking at supplies and demand, say it's not feasible to glean 500,000 acre feet just from municipal conservation when the vast majority of the water in the state, almost 90% comes from agriculture. And there's no expectation for agriculture to stop, for example, flood irrigating fields or to stop using these dirt unlined canals to um, deliver water to their ranches or their farms, um, and, and a significant amount of water seeps into those canals. So without an expectation that there be more agricultural efficiencies, the the big city water bosses are saying this is just not going to be doable. In terms of what the next governor, whoever that's going to be, is going to have to deal with with water, they're going to have to come up with funding, or at least the state legislature is going to have to come up with funding for any of the projects. And albeit that the Colorado Water Plan itself was lacking in specifics and really talking about agriculture there as well. If there is to be any increased efficiency in ag water use, there is a need for money then to help farmers bring in those efficiencies. So for the next governor and how they're going to have to deal with water, coming up with the money for any of these plans is going to be surely a huge component. Right. So as you said, Hickenlooper really tried to build a legacy for himself by creating the first statewide water plan. And he leaves without any concrete uh, action on how to fund it. And the way the unfunded piece of this water plan is $3 billion with a B dollars. And uh, what we've seen in the past couple of years, especially at the legislature and the, bu- the state budget, is the traditional source of water project, state water project funding has come from severance taxes. And the revenues from that, that's from oil and gas drilling, have been too volatile, number one, and too low to expect to cover anything near a $3 billion uh, funding gap. And so Hickenlooper will leave office without having um, put in place another funding structure to fill that gap. And so what has happened is two philanthropies, the Walton Family Foundation, Walton as in Walmart Walton, and the Gates Family Foundation, Gates Family meaning the Denver Rubber Company, not Bill Gates, 
um, have united in forming a working group that has brought together about 20 to 25 people from around the state representing a, a wide array of water interests to come up with recommendations fast. Um, so when I say fast, they started this a couple months ago, and by the end of this month, October, they're hoping to have a recommendation. It could be a statewide bottle tax. It could be a tax on sports gaming, if we ever have sports gaming. There are a lot of options, and they will be proposing some th th whatever this recommendation or mix of options that are recommended to the legislature come January, and when the legislative session begins and when Hickenlooper steps out of office, hoping to either get a referendum um, so that the lawmakers can refer this new tax on uh, the ballot, either let's say in 2019 or 2020, hoping to either get a referendum um, so that the lawmakers can refer this new tax on uh, the ballot, either let's say in 2019 or 2020, or to at least um, in the legislature itself, without a vote of the people, implement new taxes and so um, or some new funding structure that would cover this two three billion dollar shortfall so whoever the governor is is going to have to um, number one either embrace or not embrace a new tax um, both of them Bolus and Stapleton said at the Colorado Water Congress that they would support this new funding structure and they realize we do have to raise $100 million a year to avoid this shortfall. Um, it, that is a, it's, it's a heavy lift. And this is a state that in 2003 had a referendum, that a statewide referendum, I think it was for $2 billion at that point, that failed. And it failed by a big margin. Um, so given all the competing things that need funding in the state, education, health care, transportation, uh, job development in rural areas, et cetera, it, it won't be easy for either, either governor um, to really uh, make sure that this, this kind of initiative passes. And um, given their real lack of, of conversation around it or talking points around it. It doesn't really come up on the, the campaign trail. You have to wonder how prepared is either one of these candidates to uh, embrace this kind of looming crisis? Well, we shall see. But uh, moving on just in the last few minutes of the indicator, Susan, I want to talk a little bit about media access from either candidate. It does seem that there is a lot less media access for the candidates and that it's much harder for journalists now in covering elections over the last few years. But let's specifically look at the gubernatorial race. You're somebody who's covered previous administrations, previous elections. What's your sense in how Stapleton or Polis have made themselves available to the media? Well, you know, we just completed two very in-depth profiles, both each of them were in four parts of both of these candidates. Um, I would say that both of them were far less accessible than uh, candidates were 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago. And, and I was covering this stuff then for the Denver Post. It used to be that um, I would literally spend a good part of the summer before an election um, traveling the state with, with these candidates, you know, riding in the front seat of their car or trailing behind them and really 
getting to see them in all contexts, all different kinds of uh, communities in the state, all different sorts of questions, different moods, and we were able to profile them um, really as much more whole people than we are able to now without that much access. So Stapleton has been no- notorious for icing out certain reporters. He told the um, Patty Calhoun at Westward, um, she approached him and introduced herself a couple months ago um, at the state fair, I believe, just wanting to get to know him because we're all going to have to cover him. And he said, I don't do extemporaneous interviews. Um, they don't work for me. And so I think that sort of that that quote encapsulates how this works. Um, we ask questions, the media of these candidates, and you know, sometimes they answer more often than not, they don't answer. And when they do answer, it's through a prepared statement through a spokesperson. And this played out in an interesting way this week with with um, Polis, for example. I am working on this water story, and I wanted to clarify and sort of sort of go further in depth um, from the com- comments that he made at the Water Congress a month or two ago. And I was just simply referred to the comments he made at the Water Congress. That, that's what the campaign said, go, go see those remarks. And I said very clearly, yeah, I have further questions. And again, was told, you know, go, go see those remarks. So um, there's just not that kind of, yes, you can pick up the phone and call these candidates and expect them to answer kind questions. And that really enables them to not go in depth with things like water. If they know that they can be shielded from questions about um, issues, they they don't have to learn up on those issues the way that, that candidates used to. And you can see this playing out in the debates. You have the most superficial answers to these questions. And it's not just one candidate or the other or one party or another. You just have a not only a superficiality to their answers, but a reluctance to just answer basic questions. It, um, we just partnered with a League of Women Voters on a voter guide that we released last week. And it used to be 20 years ago when I started covering politics in the state, th- there wasn't a, a candidate around who would dream of not answering the League of Women Voters annual voter guide questions. And uh, I would say more often than not, these candidates are not. And so what you have are these blanks from uh, some of the candidates. And then you've got the the minor party candidates giving really great detailed answers. And at some point, I think we journalists wonder, you know, does it matter to the public what kind of availability these people um, give and what kind of transparency and how how open are they to scrutiny? And I think it's a, it's a story that journalists don't tell often because I think it makes us look badly. Um, but we're facing this pretty much across the board. And it's not just the Colorado Independent, it's all media outlets. And I think it's it's dangerous really to our ability to cast informed votes about these candidates. Well, I think it makes you wonder that if they're reluctant to engage with the media when they're running for election and arguably trying to get their message out to prospective voters and they don't want to engage with the media in that case, what are they going to be like when they're in the governor's mansion? And uh, what's their relationship going to be like to the media and transparency in that case? Exactly. And I, I think it's incumbent on not just the journalists of the state, but also just the citizenry to to expect um, and to demand that 
they make themselves available to these questions, that they hold regular press conferences, and that they don't ice out or try to sandbag reporters who ask tougher questions than others. I think we all really need to be vigilant about keeping that line of communication open to whoever is elected to run the state. Well, people can listen to a conversation I had on that issue with Mike Litwin of the Colorado Independent on the debates and on the lack of uh, enthusiasm about engaging in debates on the part of candidates because now they've got multi-millions of dollars to spend on advertising and, of course, social media as well and sending out their message in a very controlled way. That's a previous episode of The Indicator. But I'd let people know that you can subscribe to get all of the episodes of The Indicator Anywhere you get your podcasts, just search for Indicator, I-N-D-Y-C-A-T-O-R. And of course, check out all of the reporting that we have been covering online at coloradoindependent.com. Susan Green with the Colorado Independent, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks as always for having me, Maeve, and we love working with you. And you can catch new episodes of The Indicator every Thursday. And as I said, you can subscribe to the podcast of The Indicator. It's a weekly show that's coming out between now and the midterm elections in November. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. Thanks for listening.